like to draw your attention once again to the book of Micah, the fourth chapter. You may recall that Micah is in the latter part of the Old Testament, so you can either start at the beginning and go about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, or start at the New Testament at Matthew and go back just a little bit. We're in chapter 4. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 6 through 13, the remainder of chapter 4. And so, as we come to this text, you may have wondered at times what difficulties are involved with coming up with a name for a sermon series. And quite frankly, sometimes it's very difficult because you try to encapsulate the theme of an entire book in a small phrase. Well, this chapter, I think, points out why the sermon series on Micah is called A Message of Warning, A Message of Hope. Because that's exactly what we see here in chapter 4. We see Micah giving a message of warning to God's people, but then following it up with a message of hope. So if you please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Micah chapter 4, beginning at verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would open your word to us, that in it we would see marvelous things, that as we look in your word, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. We would see his sufferings on our behalf and his provision for us. Bless us this morning with the truth of your word. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There are two things that battle against grace. 
two things that make it difficult for us to understand grace and the grace that God gives specifically to us. The first thing is the view that we don't need God's grace. That somehow we've got it all together. We can handle at least all of the ordinary everyday things. Sure, if like a tornado or a hurricane came, then we might need to go to the Lord. But for every day, we've got this handled. We don't need God to interfere in our lives. We're good people who do good things. And that should really be the end of it, shouldn't it? The second thing that gets in the way of grace is the idea that we are beyond saving. That our circumstances are so bad that there's no way out even for God. That we are so down in our own sin and depravity that no one can save us and restore us, not even the Lord himself. The people of Micah's day were marked by the first perspective. And after hearing the first three chapters of Micah's prophecy, they would have been moved toward the second perspective. That is, that they had no hope based on what God had said. So now Micah holds out hope for the people of God. The people of God who are all but destroyed. And it's the same hope that is held out for the church today. It's the same hope that's held out for you and me today. And so this morning I would like us to see Micah's hope that comes to us in three aspects of rescue. First, in verses 6 through 8, we see rescue for the remnant. God comes to the rescue for his people, and he makes them a remnant. Second, we see that this is a rescue from judgment. That judgment comes upon God's people, but God is the rescuer who rescues them from judgment. And then finally, we see that the people of God do not just merely escape by the skin of their teeth, or the sweat of their brow. No, we see that this is a rescue to triumph. That God's rescue brings about a triumph over all his and our enemies. Rescue for the remnant. Rescue from judgment. Rescue to triumph. Let's begin then by looking at rescue for the remnant in verses 6 through 8. Now our passage here is connected to the beginning of this chapter. As Micah begins, verse 6, in that day, we have to understand that this refers to the time of the glorious future for the nations. As we saw in the first five verses of this chapter, all of the focus was upon the worldwide dominion and blessing of God. The nations far and wide will stream up God's mountain to be at God's temple, which was the prototypical picture of his kingdom. We were told that the word of God would go forth and that the nations would want to learn it and would desire to walk in God's ways. Not only does this have a last day's ring to it, but even to imagine a world like that is difficult for us. A world of such blessing and plenty. But what about God's people? The last we saw of God's people was them being under judgment in chapter 3. 
You may recall that verse 12 of chapter 3 ends that Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And so you can imagine if you were one of God's people and you hear this wondrous prophecy at the beginning of chapter 4, you might be tempted to say, Micah, what about us? I mean, I'm glad and all that all the nations are streaming up to the temple. I'm glad that the nations want to walk in God's way. I'm glad that the Lord has dominion over all the earth. But, but did you forget about us? Do we not have a place in this kingdom? Do we not have mercy and hope? Or do we just have judgment? You see, God's people were not only weak and threatened by enemies around them, God himself had pronounced judgment upon them. And so we might ask ourselves, do God's people have a future, or are they now cast off by God? Now, if you were with us in our series in the book of Romans, this should sound like a familiar question to you. It's a question that Paul takes up in Romans chapter 11. And Paul told us that there is yet still hope for God's people. And that's exactly what Micah is doing here 700 years earlier. God is saying that he will gather the afflicted around him. He will assemble the lame and he will gather the outcasts. Look with me at verse 6. I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. Now this is God reminding his people who they are that in spite of their circumstances, they are his people. And they are not mighty ones who can take care of themselves. They are lame. They are afflicted. They are cast off. They are needy. They have no sense or source of power in themselves. They are driven away and outcasts. Now we should see ourselves in these words. Because after all, what are Christians? Christians are those who are not wise, not powerful, not noble. Paul tells us that. But instead, Christians are those who are foolish, weak, and humble. God delights in showing his grace and saving the lowly. Why? Because it shows his power. And only those who have come to the end of themselves will reach out to Jesus and surrender themselves. It's only when we know that we cannot save ourselves, when we have come to an end in ourselves, that we reach out for Jesus. Now, how then does God assemble his people? First, it's important to see how they have become lame and outcasts. God is very clear. They have come into this situation because God has afflicted them. The end of verse 6 tells us, those whom I have afflicted. Now, God has not forgotten those whom he has chastened. He's not abandoned his people. What a word of comfort that is. What a word of grace that is. God's people, beloved, are not disposable. Even though they deserve shame and destruction, God reaches out in his mercy. Now, could you imagine if this were not true? 
What if the church's existence depended on its faithfulness? What if you had to keep your place in God's love? Our record, if we are honest, is not very good. But God gathers his people by his will, not by our merit. And look at what God does. He transforms them. He will make the lame the remnant, and he will make the cast off a strong nation. Look at verse 7. The lame I will make a remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. This language is transformational. It's the way that God speaks, for example, the same verb and preposition in the book of Exodus when he says, I will make the sea dry land. And he parts the Red Sea. God makes things that were not as they are. And he makes things that we cannot even believe they would be in this way as they are. God does the undoable. And God's people, Micah tells us, will thrive under his grace. Now, often we think of the church as barely surviving. That our goal as the church is simply to hold on by our fingernails. And the language of the remnant reinforces this. We think about the church being small, maybe even insignificant. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's especially the case in today's culture with attacks that are coming from the culture on the family, on morality, on the church, on Christianity. But you have to hear that's not how God sees his people. He doesn't see the remnant as being small and insignificant. They are a strong nation, God says. They will not just survive, they will thrive. Now, none of this comes by their own might, because remember, they are the lame. They are the cast off. But God reminds us that by His grace, all of His grace, His people are mighty and strong. Then at the end of verse 7, Micah shifts from a word from the Lord to a word about the Lord. He says, And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Now God is not only bringing His people back from being cast off, He is coming Himself to be their King. And we have here a very specific instance of the Lord reversing the effects of sin. One of the darkest moments in all of Israel's history was when they called for a human king. It was not only foolish, but God told Samuel that it was a sign of their rejecting him as a king and in choosing instead to have a human as a ruler over them. But now, Micah tells us, The Lord is returning. He will reign over His people. Now this would have special significance for Micah's hearers because they had the benefit of hindsight. You know what hindsight is, don't you? It's when you talk to someone and you say, well, I knew that was going to happen after it's already happened. You see, you look into the past and you say, oh, of course I knew, I, I knew that was what was going to happen all the time. And you say, well, then why didn't you mention it before it happened? That would have been a lot more helpful than pointing it out after the fact. But see, they would have had the benefit of hindsight of this horrible, sinful decision. They would have experienced the disastrous reign of Saul. 
They would have experienced the division of the kingdom after Solomon. They would have experienced living under wicked and sinful kings. They knew that the Lord was the ruler they needed. Now that has significance for us also. Because far too often the church acts like it does not need God. It either changes or it ignores God's word at will. Indeed, it makes great claims for its own power and wisdom, as if God is unnecessary, superfluous. And don't we also do that as individuals as well? How often do you pray for daily guidance and help from the Lord? Or do we live like we can handle most of life's issues? Do you only go to the Lord when things get really tough? Is the Lord somehow a specialist that you call in when things get really dire? Or is He the daily Lord of your life? Now there is another important aspect to this reign of the Lord. This reign is forever. Now this time is still future for Micah and Judah. The this time refers to the days of the transforming God's people into the remnant. But there is no end to the Lord's reign from this time forth and forevermore, Micah says. Now this is an unusual phrase in the Old Testament. It's only used ten times and only in the Psalms, Isaiah, and here. And it is a picture in the Old Testament of what we see so often in the New Testament of how our Lord shall reign forever and ever. And how there shall come a day when there shall be no more night. And we shall all gather around the throne. That picture of the Lord's reign is being painted for us here in the prophet Micah. When we look forward to is the never-ending role of our good and mighty king. Calvin puts it so well. When God assures us that his assistance will last until the very end, indeed, without end, and that in life and in death we shall feel his protection and safekeeping, what greater assurance could we want? What greater assurance of safety, of security, of hope could you want than to know that the Lord's reign will never end, that there is no one to oppose Him. There is no stop to His reign. There is no pause. There is no taking over. There is no abandonment at all. Next, Micah moves on to describe the future in terms of judgment and deliverance. He does this in three ways, two of which we'll look at today, one of which is found in chapter 5. Micah describes the closer future of the pain of judgment that's going to come. And then he describes the further future of deliverance. And he does it with the word now in verses 9 and 11. And in chapter 5, verse 1, and he contrasts it with a there, or a they, or a but you. He's setting up this contrast between now and then. Micah wants to be clear that Judah will suffer. 
There will be pain. After all, Judah has brought it upon herself through her choices and actions. Now, we see this all around us all the time, don't we? When someone goes on a course of bad decisions or of sin, the result is that pain comes down upon them. Thieves get punished. Immorality destroys marriages. Sin brings about pain and hardship. So now Micah wants Judah to know that what they experience, what they will experience, is what they have brought on themselves. They have asked for it. He does this in verse 9. Now, as we look at verse 9, you have to, I think, hear Micah speaking this with a voice of sarcasm. He is predicting the future exile of Judah from Babylon. He is describing a time in which Judah will be exiled, will be conquered by Babylon and driven into slavery. And so he says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain has seized you like a woman in labor? You see, Judah had trusted in human kings rather than God. It's as if Micah's looking at them and saying, how's that worked out for you? Now that you're in exile in Babylon. Now it is a time to come, but that's what he's describing, this closer future. He's saying, why are you crying out? Don't you have a king? Oh, right. You don't, because you're under judgment. Don't you have someone to counsel you and to get you out of this predicament? No, you don't, because you never did. Because only the Lord can deliver you, not a human king. And he further emphasizes this pain in verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. Now, to writhe means to twist or contort yourself when you're in pain. To groan here could be translated to scream. The, the, what is given here is an image of a woman in labor. Now, ladies, you have to remember here that there were no drugs back then. And so you can imagine that in that kind of birth, ladies would scream. This is one of the worst pains that anyone could imagine. Complete agony. You know, well, maybe except for a man who has the flu. But, but other than that, This is the worst pain that you could imagine. And so the picture here is of a woman in complete agony. Now, Micah's language here, though, is deliberate. Because he describes the judgment and the pain that will come upon Judah, but he does it in a context that gives a nevertheless of deliverance. Because you mothers know this. Even if childbirth is incredibly painful, it's not just about pain. It's actually primarily about the arrival of a new life. It's a pain that gives way to joy. That's what Micah's describing here. This pain will give way to joy. The pain of judgment gives way to the nevertheless of deliverance. The pain is that the daughter of Zion, that is God's people, will go out from the city of Jerusalem to Babylon. Now Micah is predicting this future exile. Now I have to take a moment here and pause. This is remarkable. This prediction is only possible because the Bible is the inspired word of God. Because 
If you were to hear Micah speaking these words in his day, you would go up to him and say, Micah, I don't think you understand here. Assyria is the one who's at the gates. They're the world power threatening us. Babylon is way off there. They don't have big armies. They don't have a huge empire. Why would we be worried about Babylon? We should worry about Assyria. So picture it this way. It would be like I gave you a prediction that the United States would fall militarily to Poland or India or Brazil. And you would say, Pastor, I don't think so. If the United States is going to have a military defeat, I would put my money on China or on Russia or some other great nation. I wouldn't pick Poland. What are you doing? And so what Mike is predicting here is more than a century away. And it gives us a glimpse into the worldview of Bible scholars. Bible scholars look at this passage and they say, Micah couldn't have written this. Well, why? Well, because he wouldn't have known that Babylon was a threat. And you see, they presume there is no such thing as supernatural prophecy. They think there is only the ability of the prophet to see trends and to make a so-called prediction upon it. As if I were to tell you the stock market will go up or go down and it's just an educated guess on my part. But what we have here is the inspired word of God. And that's why God predicts exactly more than a hundred years before the exile of Judah into Babylon. He even describes it in its detailed stages. They will go out of the city. They will dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon. That's exactly what happened. They were taken out of Jerusalem, and they dwelt for a while in the countryside in kind of like refugee camps, until finally they were dragged all the way over to Babylon. It's exactly what happened. And this is how Micah describes the now, the close future. But this is also where Micah gives us or rather, the Lord gives us the there. Look at verse 10. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. It is in Babylon that deliverance will come. It is there that the Lord will rescue them. And how will that rescue come? It will come by redemption. Now, this is a marvelous biblical word. It's the only time it's used in the book of Micah, but we see it throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, and throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Romans, and we see it in Colossians, as Paul speaks of the redemption we have in Christ Jesus. We see it in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, how sinners were redeemed by the sacrifice of the animals. And we perhaps see it most clearly in the story of Ruth being redeemed by Boaz. I have to ask you, isn't this just like God? The bad news is that exile in Babylon is coming. But the good news is that that's exactly where deliverance is going to begin. Babylon is a sign of God's anger, but it is the first step in his restoration of his people. God knows what he's doing. We may not understand, but that doesn't change the fact. Ralph Davis puts it so well. 
Because we are surprised by how God redeems. He says, what does one do when deliverance begins in what is apparently the wrong place? Welcome it and rejoice. That's what we are called to do. Has God brought you to an end in yourself? Do you see that you are lost and without hope? Is life too hard in all of its troubles? What can you do? Well, you can run to the Lord. You can surrender to Jesus. You can ask Him for deliverance, not to escape your circumstances, but to become a child of God. Circumstances end, but deliverance by Jesus is forever. Then Micah moves to the third and final description of rescue. Of a rescue to triumph. He has described the gathering of God's people as a remnant under the Lord's rule. And he has described the deliverance that the Lord provides from judgment. And here we have now, again, another now and then contrast. Look with me at verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. What we see here are the taunts of the nations against God's people. The nations are assembled against God's people, and they express their hatred for them and God through taunts. They are gathered around, ready to make destruction, ready to strike. And what they want even more than death and destruction is they want God's people to be defiled. This word has the idea of making something twisted or perverted. They want to enjoy the misery of God's people. They say, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. The idea is to look at the humiliation of God's people and to taunt them for it and to enjoy it. Now, to give you an idea of what that would look like, this is what happened 150 years ago or so in public hangings. People would come and enjoy the hanging, and they would taunt the the convicted guilty person, and they would throw uh, epithets at them and insults, and they would throw rotten fruit, and they would express their displeasure and hatred toward the guilty. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, that's exactly what the crowd did around the cross with Jesus. They taunted him and they said, if you are really God, come down off the cross. When, of course, they did not know that because he was God, the only thing he would not do is come down off the cross. So what is Micah predicting here? Well, as we've seen before, prophecy has multiple fulfillments. It's like looking at a mountain range with one mountain behind another behind another. And you think you only see one mountain, but there are actually a range of mountains. He could be predicting a serious attack on Israel. He could be predicting Babylon's exile of Israel. He could be predicting the church's persecution under Rome. He could be predicting Islam's war against the church in the Middle Ages and in the Reformation period. But most likely, he's he's predicting here an end times scenario. The nations are poised for that last attack upon the church of Jesus Christ. They are pushed on by the devil to destroy the church. 
So what does the church do in the face of such threats? How will we resist the force of so powerful an enemy? You may even be thinking about that now. As you hear the news today about attacks by the world on the church and upon Christianity. Well, Micah answers the now of the nation's attacks with a but in verse 12. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan. And the language here you have to understand is emphatic. They, in all capitals, they don't understand what the Lord is doing. They've missed the mark. You see, the world only sees its own power. It only understands its own way of thinking. It misses the ways of the Lord. It does not take into account the ways of Jesus. Death from life. Hope from hopelessness. What is the Lord's plan? It is brilliant in its surprise. Picture the scene here. The nations have come from all over the world to surround God's people. They have brought themselves all to one place to destroy God's people, to stamp them out, and they think they have the upper hand because they are all together. But, Micah says, it's actually the Lord gathering them for their destruction. They think they are going to come and wipe out God's people. And Micah tells us that God is bringing them to the threshing floor to be stamped out. Now, if you don't know much about ancient grain making, you're not alone. But what they would do is they would take the grain and put it in a threshing room on the threshing floor. And they would bring animals out to stamp on it, to break up the grain, to break off the husks and the chaff from the wheat. And then what the person would do is take a huge, almost like a rake, and throw the grain up in the air, and there was a window in which the chaff would get blown out the window and the heavy grain would fall down. But this stamping, this breaking up, was necessary first. And that's the picture God's giving us here. They thought they were going to stamp out God's people. All of a sudden, they look up and they say, Oh no, we're on the threshing floor. And as soon as they realize that, God's people, the church, with horns of iron and hooves of bronze, stamp them out of existence. God gets the victory. God is in control. You see, God's plan is always going forward. In fact, when others think they're opposing the Lord, they're actually carrying out His plan. God rescues His people. And he does so, so that they will triumph over all their enemies. That's the work of Jesus, our King. So how does all that help you now? How can you see a rescue that is far off in the future? How will this promise of a rescue help you to face the attacks of the enemy? Well, you've already seen this prophecy come true. Not perhaps in its final fulfillment, but in a very clear and far-reaching way. You have seen it in the redemption worked by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rescuer of his people. He has redeemed them from their sin and exile by his death on the cross. He gathered all who believe on him. 
to be under his rule, to be his sheep, lame though they are, to be under his rule and protection. He has brought them through the pain of judgment to the remarkable deliverance. Just when Satan thought he had the greatest triumph, just when Satan thought he had defeated God by killing his son, God revealed the surprise of the rescue. In his death, Jesus triumphed over his enemies and over your enemies too. Do you believe that? Is that your hope? If you have not put your trust in Jesus, I urge you to do that now. He is your rescue. He is your hope. Rest in Jesus. Let's pray.